If you have a Bible, let me encourage you to go to Acts, Acts 21. As I mentioned before, the, uh, uh, well, I'm collaborating with another pastor on this Acts series, and uh, his name's Chris Bronze. He's down in Illinois. Good friend of mine, mentor in a lot of ways. He's kind of like a big brother. I tell him he's old all the time, but um, he's uh, just been a good friend. Anyway, so we talk every week about the text. He's preaching. Uh, we're, we're going through the book of Acts together. We share with what we're studying and reading, things like that. Sermons always look different uh, in the end. I mean, there's usually the same themes and stuff like that, but he preaches to his church. I preach to my church. You know, that's just kind of how it goes. And so, uh, but we, we're sharing resources and things like that in terms of like insights and stuff like that. And so, uh, incidentally, last week, um, uh, he was only doing a shorter section of scripture than what I did in that, but he, he liked my outline uh, that kind of, so he gave that to uh, his church last week and said, hey, if you want the overview, this is a good way of looking at it. And so this week, I really liked something he did for his church. And so I put it in the handout. And so what he did is basically he had, uh, and that's the last couple pages if you have a handout there. Uh, and it's also available online. You can download on the website. But uh, it's, it's kind of a cheat sheet of all the individuals, groups, and background text uh, that we're going to read about in here. It's like, okay, who's a tribune? And you know, who are the Sadducees? And all this stuff. Because we read about these people and stuff like that. Uh, and it's kind of like, what's going on here? So he kind of put together a really helpful two-page uh, cheat sheet for that. So I gave that to you so you could have that as well. I appreciated him doing that. And I thought you'd benefit from it. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read our text, and, and I know that it's a little bit longer, and I've, I've struggled back and forth on this, but uh, I've gotten some encouragement to keep doing it. We're almost there, and, and I, I, we're going to talk about uh, most of this text today in some way or another. I'll allude to it. So if I read through it now, then I can just make a reference to it later on. So I'm going to read uh, Acts 21, 1, all the way through chapter 23, verse 24, okay? So I'll try to keep it moving. I'll try to read with inflection and stuff like that so that you can uh, follow along. But if you're using one of the Bibles that maybe you picked up on the way out, it's page 930, or, or the way in, not the way out, if you picked up on the way in. Hopefully you're not on the way out yet, okay? You know, ninth, uh, page 930, one of the Bibles provided there. Acts 21. They had just left, or they had just told that they were going to leave Ephesus, and the Ephesian elders there, or they, the, the Ephesian elders met them, and they're departing, and there's great sorrow because they're not going to see each other again. This is where we pick up. And when we departed from them and set sail, we came to a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. And when we had come into the site of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey. And they all, with their wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the bench, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. When they finished the voyage from, when we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemyus and greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. And the next day we departed and came to Caesarea. We entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with them. He had four unmarried daughters who had prophesied. Remember, we had met Philip earlier, and he had this tremendous ministry, the Ethiopian and stuff like that. And then he disappears off the scene, and now in Caesarea we see him here again, and we see that obviously he's been living faithfully for the Lord. It's 
kind of a neat insert that Luke gives us there. Verse 10, while we stayed for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and will deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him, Paul, not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul says, what are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I'm ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. And these days we got ready, and, or after these days we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Manasseh of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they'd heard it, they glorified God. And, when, and they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They're all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you, that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling him not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them, pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what you have been told about you but that, you, but that you yourself also live in observance to the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been uh, strangled and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men, and the next day he purified himself among them and went into the temple, giving notice with them, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law in this place. Moreover, he has even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. As they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, and they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another, and he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, so he ordered them to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of people following followed, crying out, away with him! As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, may I say something to you? And he says, do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who was who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness. By, by the way, I just got to say, I just love the fact that Paul gets mistaken for an Egyptian assassin here. All right? Pretty, pretty interesting. Verse 39, Paul replied, I'm a Jew from Tarsus of Sicilia, 
a citizen of no obscure city, I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they had heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I'm a Jew, born in Tarsus and Cilicia, and brought up in this city, educated by the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. I persecuted the way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women as a high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From, then I, from them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but they didn't understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Rise, go to Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man, according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. At that very hour, I received my sight and saw him. And he said, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard And now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized. Wash away your sins, calling on his name. When I had returned to the temple and was praying, returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and I saw him saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed them. And he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Up until this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they'd stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you to flog a man who's a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said, What are you about to do? For this man's a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? He said, Yes. The tribune answered, I bought, my, I bought the citizenship for a large sum. Paul says, But I'm a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune was also afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason... While he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet him and brought Paul down and set him before them. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest, Ananias, Ananias, commanded them who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul says, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul says, I did not know, brothers, that he was a high priest. For it was written, 
You should not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now, when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other were Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of the Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope of the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose in the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees said that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledged them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, We find nothing wrong with this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from them among them by force and bring them into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. When it was day, The Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath, neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There was more than 40 who had made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, we have strictly bound ourselves by oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly, and we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Now, the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush. So he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him, brought him to the tribune, and said, Paul the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand, going aside, asked him privately, What is it that you have to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as they thought as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them for more than 40 other men are lying in ambush for them and have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they killed them. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Then he called to the centurions and said, get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen, 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea in the third hour of the night, which is 9 p.m., and uh, provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix, our governor. Boy, this story, this book is picking up speed and it's intensifying. The actions was happening. I love how Paul's nephew, obviously a young man here, because uh, he's been led by the hand. You know, it's very gently that the, the ruler talks to him. You know, speaking truth. There's just a lot here. Father, as we look now at this text, I pray that I would be able to communicate in a way that's helpful, and I pray that uh, we would. Uh, love you supremely, and that this text would be uh, encouraging to us. So help me to communicate in a way that's helpful and clear and accurate. And thank you. Thank you for this privilege. In Christ's name we do pray. Amen. You know, sometimes following Jesus can be deeply confusing. Have you ever noticed that? I mean, sometimes, I mean, you know, the big picture is obvious, okay? I mean, we get, we get the big picture, right? Okay, but it's the, it's, it's the, it's the details that get a little bit fuzzy at times. You know, God, he, he's not like a magic eight ball. Remember those magic eight balls? You know, you'd ask it a question, shake it, and then the little thing would come up. And, you know, it was always these vague answers that, you know, this always told you what you had to do, right? Okay, well, God's not a magic eight ball. And, you know, and we're not robots. We're not living according to some predetermined script that has been put into us, that we have no decision making, we just do whatever's put into us. And so because of those facts, uh, you know, sometimes it can be confusing in this pilgrimage that we're on. Uh, 
And so what I want to talk about today is this. I want to talk about that following Jesus requires making decisions with God-given wisdom, which prioritizes the gospel mission. Okay, so following Jesus requires making decisions with God-given wisdom, which prioritizes the gospel mission. This is what we see Paul doing over and over again in those long sections of Scripture that we just read. We see him making decisions, and we see him choosing paths that are not always the easiest way. And so, but when we make decisions, according to the wisdom that God gives to us, and we're told that if we lack wisdom, we will have, uh, God will grant wisdom to us in James chapter 1 and verse 5. So we see that when we do that, that sometimes that means we're going to choose a path that is a little bit easier, or sometimes it means we're going to choose a path that's harder if we're following God's plan. Because sometimes the path is easier, and sometimes it is harder. Um, but uh, so a few examples, and I, I don't want to take a whole lot of time to do this, but throughout Acts, we see things like Peter and John going to the temple, and they heal someone. It was like, wait, we can't give you money, but we can heal you. That was a really cool thing to do. But then they're interrogated for it. In Acts chapter 5, it says that many signs and wonders are regularly being done by the hands of the apostles, and the people are holding them in high esteem. It says, it says in verse 13 of Acts 5, none of the rest dared to join them, but the people held them in high esteem, and more and more believers were added. So this was an easy thing. This was more easy, I would say. But then, right after that, they're arrested. There's a harder path. Stephen's speech is a hard Pass. Philip in Samaria, great things happening, revivals taking place, easy path, and then the Spirit says, okay, go to the desert, a harder path. Chapter 10, Peter sees that the Holy Spirit is going to the Gentiles, and that's the easy thing. It's just a wonderful thing to see there to be part of it, but then he's got to explain it to everyone else, and then a whole council has to be formed for it. That's a harder part of it. The list goes on and on. Even last week, we read in chapter 20 about the relationship Paul had with the elders of the church at Ephesus, and it would have been easy for him to stay with them because they begged him to stay with them. Great things were happening there, but he chose the hard path and moved on. You know, so up until this point, Paul has really been on the offensive. He's been doing what he wants, and he's been dealing with difficulty, and I'm not by any way saying that it's been easy up to this point, but I mean, he's been on the offensive. Now we have a turn in the story. Now we have a turn in the book where Paul is now on defense, and it's going to be this way for the rest of it. Now, of course, he's going to turn defense into offense, but it, primarily he is going to be on defense. And so if you're a Christian, most of the time, the more difficult way is the best way. God's called us to a life that sometimes just, I mean, it just feels like it's not easy because we're going against current, we're going against culture, we're going against our own sin that's inside of us, and so it's a hard path that God has called us to. So, if I say that following Jesus requires making decisions with God-given wisdom, which prioritizes the gospel mission, so that means that the hard way is the best way. So what should we expect? So if we say we're going we're gonna to choose the hard way because it's the best way, we're going we're gonna to make these decisions consciously, what should we expect along the way? Let me just share five things from this text that I think is going to be helpful that we can know that we should expect. Number one, we should expect people to share their opinions. All right? Has anyone ever shared their opinion with you? All right? I remember, you know, uh, when, when I first, we first had children. Uh, did you know that people have different opinions about raising their kids? Did you know that there's different opinions about 
letting kids cry or not letting them cry? Did you know there's different opinions about cloth diapers and disposable diapers? Did you know that? Hey, yeah. Did you know that people hold these opinions very strongly? <laughs> right? Um, did you know there's opinions on, uh, on how to uh, uh, dress your kids and stuff like this? I remember Mia was, but man, she was really little, like, like infant type thing, you know, like, and not walking at all, not even crawling. And I had her at church, and I was holding a brand new dad, all proud, you know, I'm, you know, you know, carrying her around. And she had these little shoes on, these little gel things, sandals type things, everything like this. And, you know, a, a, a dear, sweet lady, older lady came up to me and accosted me. It was like, why do you have these shoes on your daughter? That's going to deform her feet. And I was like, whoa, I didn't see this coming, you know. People have opinions, right? You know, in this text here, there's a couple times where Paul gets people telling his opinion. First of all, there's a couple, it's kind of confusing if you read on first, uh, first look at it. In chapter 21, verse 4, it says, it's through the Spirit, they were telling him not to go to Jerusalem. And then later on at Agabus, and they're saying, don't go into Jerusalem, please don't go into Jerusalem. And he's like, yeah, I'm going. I'm going. So they shared their opinions with him. It even says, according to the Spirit, and he says, no, I'm going. Okay? Now, it was right. Was he going against the Spirit? What was happening here? Probably the best way to understand this, without getting into all of the, probably the best understanding is that the Spirit of God was predicting to these people what was going to happen to Paul. They, he was letting them know what was going to happen to Paul because Paul already knew about that anyway. Paul had already been told that he was going to go to Jerusalem. And, uh, but they were, they were getting a prediction this was going to happen to prepare them for it. And they took that as, please don't go. And so they took the prediction as a prohibition. So that's probably what was happening here. But people are sharing their opinions. Don't go to Jerusalem. And he says, no, I'm not going to go to Jerusalem. There's a second example, though. I don't know if you, you kind of picked up on the story later on. He gets there. And so he's talking with James. He's talking with people. And they said, listen, great things are happening. Revival's breaking. Christians are coming. Jewish Christians are coming. But here's the problem. There is this teaching that the Jewish Christians here, they think that you're telling people that they cannot keep Jewish worship laws. So might we suggest take these four guys to the temple with you? They're about ready to finish up their Nazarite vow, and so when the vow is done, there's a sign of that. They shave their heads because their hair has grown, and they don't cut their hair during the whole time they're under the vow. And so when you go to the temple at the end of the vow and you do the rites of purification, then you shave your head. So he says, listen, this is what you do. You, you, you take these four people, you purify, you pay their expenses. That way the Jewish Christians here, they'll see that you're not saying that they can't do the Jewish laws of purification. It's just saying that it's not necessary for salvation, but it's not a prohibition against doing it. So why don't you do that? So what does Paul do? He says, yeah. Let's do it. So here we have two examples. One where people are telling him, don't do something. And he says, no, I'm going to do it. The other one, people says, do this. And he's like, yeah, it's a good idea. What was it? He was listening to some people, but not other people. You see, different people looking at the same situation will give you different suggestions all the time. And so if we're saying, okay, we're going to follow the hard way, we're going to follow Jesus Christ, you're going to have people that are going to give you your opinions and give you their opinions. And they're going to, sometimes it's going to make sense and sometimes it's not going to make sense. And so fulfilling, and now how did, how did Paul do this? Well, because fulfilling God's given mission to him, fulfilling his God-given mission was Paul's guiding principle when making decisions about whether or not to listen to advice. He says, listen, I, I, I got to get to Jerusalem because this is, what, this is what God's called me to do. And I know that the God, he's made it very clear, and this is the next step in this. And so I'm going to go, whether or not people tell me I'm gonna, I should or not. 
later on, though, when about this, this law purification system in the temple thing, he's like, you know what? For the sake of the gospel, that is a good idea. For the sake of the gospel, for the sake of fulfilling my mission, yeah, that's a good idea. I'm going to do that. So this was the deciding factor for Paul of whether or not he was going to listen to people or not listen to people. Was, was it going to advance the mission that God had called him to do? So if we're choosing a hard way as believers, if we're choosing a life of following Jesus Christ in a hard way, let me just submit that you're going to get people sharing opinions all the time. And how, who you listen to and, and, and whether or not you listen to people, it has to be funneled through this idea of what is the mission that God has called us to do. Great commission, great commandment. Go into all the world, preach the gospel. Love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Love your neighbors yourself. Those are the things that need to be the funnel, or the, to switch metaphors, the filter that which we look through and we make our decisions about uh, listening to people's advice. So first of all, if we're choosing, or, or so when the hard way is the best way, we should expect people to share their opinions. Secondly, when the hard way is the best way, we should anticipate needing an ice pack, okay? All right? We should anticipate some pain, all right? Um, the enemy is relentless. Uh, the Jews stirring up the crowds. We saw this in chapter 21, verse 27. We saw that how they're stirring up the crowd. It, we saw it was so bad in verse 35 that soldiers had to be called in to, to basically surround Paul, pick him up, carry him through the, 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 the crowd because this crowd was being so violent. Later on, we're going to see in chapter 22, you remember it says, uh, let's see here, it said... Chapter 23, actually, it became so violent, verse 10, that they were afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by him, by them. He's going to almost get, he's going to get beat. He's going to almost be flogged. You see, the enemy is relentless. There was a plot against his life that his nephew, his young nephew, found out about that we read about. That if his young nephew hadn't found out about it, then Paul would have been murdered they're, the enemy is relentless. Let me tell you, when we choose the hard way as the best way, the enemy is relentless and will, will try to stop you. There'll be, there'll be discouragements along the way. There'll be pressures and things like that. So understand, it's not going to be always pleasant, but it's the best way, okay? It's the best way. Um, can I just say here, and part of what the, the tactic used was misinformation, Misinformation can be incredibly damaging. You know, in 21, they're talking about when Paul goes to the temple, they, they totally twisted everything that he was doing there. Think about how, how discouraging that would have been for Paul. He says, listen, I'm doing this. The whole reason I'm doing this is trying to help you and try to, to, to give you, to try to be gracious towards you. And you're turning this around and you're, you're accusing me of being anti-Jew and anti-law and anti-the temple. You're saying I'm bringing Gentiles into the temple. I didn't bring any Gentile in with me because that would have been a big no-no to bring a Gentile into the temple court there. They had, a, they had one section for Gentiles, but they couldn't go into where the Jews could go into. And they just assume, well, hey, we saw him with this guy in town, and now he's here. He must have brought him in. And misinformation, incredibly damaging, incredibly discouraging. So if I could just make a, a contemporary application here, this is one of the reasons why that we need to be very cautious about what we tell people or the information we pass on, whether in person or online, reposting, retweeting, uh, what we tell other people, what we know are things that we've heard. We've got to be very careful that that is accurate. 
um, because misinformation can be incredibly, incredibly damaging. And it is disappointing to know that sometimes even our best efforts are misunderstood or even twisted. And that's what Paul was experiencing here. But how did, how did Paul keep going? He needs an ice pack all the time. I mean, this guy, I mean, he should have bought stock in Bengay, right? Okay, I mean, this guy needed encouragement and help all along the way because he was uh, persecuted and, and, and beat all the time. And, and here he is trying to do what's right. Fulfilling God's given mission was his motivation for pressing on during the most painful moments. It, it, it was like, it, it, was a, it was just this, this uh, burning desire for him to keep going. He says in, in uh, I don't know if you remember in uh, chapter 21, verse 13, he says, what are you doing weeping and breaking my heart when they're begging him not to go? And he says, I'm ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in, Jesus, in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. In chapter 20, last week we saw in 24, he says, I do not count my life of any value or precious to myself. If only I may finish my course in the ministry I've received from the Lord Jesus to testify of the gospel of the grace of God. He says, this is why I'm here. I'm here to testify the grace of God. This is my mission. That's what kept him going when he needed an ice pack the most, when he was hurt, when he was bruised, when the hard way was the best way for him, but it was difficult. What motivated him to keep going, he says, I've been given a mission that I need to complete. We've been given a mission too. Love your neighbor yourself. Love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. Reflect the fragrance of Jesus Christ. You see, we've been given a mission. And that has to motivate us to keep going even when the hard way makes it really obvious that it is the hard way. There's, there's another thing that you should get ready for or you should um, uh, be aware of if you choose the hard way as the best way is uh, get ready to say I'm sorry. There's this interesting thing here in chapter 23 when Paul is brought back before the council and he says, brothers, I've lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And then the high priest says, smack him in the mouth. Now, why did he do that? Well, because um, he, he knows that uh, he's just told him his story the day before on uh, how he was a persecutor and then now he's not and, and all the changes that he's done. And, and so the high priest says, well, this guy's a heretic, smack him in the mouth. He's saying that he, he's lived in good conscience with that, smack him in the mouth. Well, there's this interesting thing here where Paul then kind of just uncorks on him and, and comes back and says, God's going to strike you and, and all this. And then they're, they're amazed that he would talk to a high priest that way. And so he says, well, I didn't know he was the high priest. Well, some people have kind of scoffed at that and said, how does he not know? How does he not know as a high priest? Well, I think there's a couple reasons why he didn't. I think it was sincere that he didn't know. Number one, it was chaotic in there. People shouting all the time. He may not have seen or recognized who actually gave the command to smack him. I mean, it, it just... It was probably very chaotic. But I think even more so, and uh, one commentator, John Stott, who's really helpful, uh, he, he, he surmises, and I agree with him, that it probably was Paul's notoriously bad eyesight. 
we know from other letters that, that Paul writes he, he, that he actually had to have other people write for him because his eyesight was so bad. But then in a couple that he actually wrote, he actually says, see with how large a letter I've written with my own hand. So he, he's writing really big because he can't see too well. Some people think that may have been a carryover from his blindness on the road to Damascus experience. We don't know. But we do know there's enough evidence that he had really bad eyesight. I think that's the most logical explanation here. The guy was blind as a bat, right? Okay, and so he doesn't know who was telling him to, to hit him. And so this is what happened. He says, the high priest, how would you talk to a high priest like that? Amazingly enough, Paul immediately apologizes, and he quotes Scripture. That's the reason why I think this is a sincere apology is because he quotes Scripture. And he says, you're right, I shouldn't do that. I'm sorry. Now, we're going to make mistakes along the way. As we're choosing the hard way as the best way, we are going to make mistakes. And we are going to get beat down and discouraged and maybe respond in a way that we shouldn't, and we're going to have to, we're going to, have to apologize. We're going to have to say, I'm sorry. Paul did apologize. He did it quickly here. Um, and so I think that this is a, 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 a good example for us. In a strange twist of irony, though, Christians are too often the last people to apologize sometimes, right? Too often we're the last ones to apologize. And I think, I think the whole premise of the gospel message of us, uh, of us having hope in Christ is that we've been forgiven, that we have to apologize, right? We're sinners. But by virtue of, of us saying that we have a Savior, Jesus Christ, we're saying we're not perfect. And so I think instead of being uh, slow to apologize and being slow to admit we're wrong, Paul here is modeling for us that along the way, in the hard way, in the hard path that we are trying to walk, even though it's the best way, we're going to make mistakes. We're going to mess up. We're going to offend each other. We're going to misspeak. We're going to, to, to sin. And so we need to apologize. And so I would say this, if we truly prioritize the gospel mission, we will be quick to apologize. If, if we prioritize the message, the gospel message, the, the mission that God has given to us, if that's our priority, that's our motivation to get through the ice pack moments, that's the reason that, and that's how we funnel our decision-making process of whether to listen to people's advice or not. If we truly prioritize the gospel mission in our life, we are going to be quick to apologize because we don't want to do anything to get in the way of that mission. And we're going to say, okay, I'm sorry. Okay, yeah, oh, you're right. My fault. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. But when we are so concerned about our reputations and what people think about us and being right and scoring points in the argument, we're going to be a lot slower to apologize. And what's happened in that moment, my friend, what's happened in that moment is that we have just taken our gospel mission and we've set it aside and put our reputation in its place. And Paul here, he wasn't caring about reputation he wasn't caring about it. He says, okay, oh, oh this, is, this is in the way of the gospel mission. Okay, yep, I'm sorry. Forgive me. So get ready to say I'm sorry. Two more that we we'll want to talk to. If we're going to choose the hard way as the best way, then we need to strive to be winsome and wise. So look at what Paul does here. Paul, he tells a story um, when he's brought before the people. There's, there's some things there we don't, that we 
probably don't pick up on about the importance of the language, but I'll just say this. He says, can I speak to him in this language? And he speaks in that language. All that to say is he was identifying with the people, okay? He was making sure that they understood. I told you I thought it was, it was interesting and, and almost humorous that he gets mistaken for an Egyptian assassin. It, it, it's pretty comical to me. I don't know why it's so funny to me. It just kind of tickles my funny bone to hear. He says, like, aren't you the guy, aren't you from Egypt that, that's, you know, that's killing people all the time? He's like, no, I, I, I'm from Tarsus. What are we talking about, you know? Um, it, it, but, you know, he's, he's using language. He's using his heritage. All that in a very winsomely and wisely manner to try to communicate and further the gospel mission here. But he's, he tells his story. And this is what Paul does. He, he often uses his story. And I think we can be instructed by that. Use your story of, of how Christ showed his grace to you in talking to other people. Tell people that story. People should know that you're a believer in Christ and, and, and how that came about. He, stories are incredibly powerful. You say, well, I had kind of a boring story. Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, I used to think that. I mean, I grew up in church and, you know, I believed in God when I was pretty young. And by the time I was 12, I thought he wanted me to be a pastor. So I just kind of just said, I'm going to be a pastor. So that's what I did. You know, I went to school and thought, well, I'll study the Bible. I'm going to be a pastor. And then all that, kind of a boring story. It's not, though. It's not because it's a story of God's grace upon a sinner's life. And the older I get, the more I realize what a terrible sinner I really am and how God has so graciously forgiven me. And so patient with me. You know, the older you get, you realize how patient God really is, right? How patient he is. That's, that's what people need to hear. You need to hear how you're just amazed. I, man, I'd have broken up with me a long time ago. <laughs> you know? But God is, he's, he's there. You know, people need to hear that. Stories are powerful. But, and it seems like Paul talked about himself a lot. And you say, well, man, you know, kind of a little arrogant there, Paul, aren't you? No, because it always was about what Christ had done for him. It always was a way of talking about Christ and Jesus Christ. So this is his winsomely and wise way that he talked about sharing stories that would bring people always back to Jesus Christ. So let me encourage you. You have a story about what God has done in your life. Let me just encourage you to share that with people, okay? Just share that with people. They need to know what Christ has done for you. You know, another thing he does uh, being in a, that was very winsome and wise is that he, he used his rights. Do you remember this? In, in chapter uh, uh, 22, at the end of chapter 22, they're, they're laying him out to be flogged. They're stretching him out, and they're getting ready to start whipping him with this uh, terrible punishment, uh, which no Roman citizen was supposed to ever have, and this is what he does. And so he says, wait a minute, I'm a Roman citizen. He, he used his rights. He invoked his rights as a Roman citizen. But he did that for the sake of the gospel. He did that so that he could continue on in his mission to continue to tell the people of Christ because that's what, he, that's what he knew God had wanted him to do and was calling him to do. And so he uses his rights. Now, but other times in this situation, but in other times, Paul was willing to take the loss 
uh, in, in uh, uh, Philippians, he says, I've counted all things as lost. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he tells Christians, he says, listen, you guys are, are, are going to court. And you guys are taking each other to court. Don't do that. Don't do that. Just take the loss. Just take the loss. Just, just, just don't be suing one another because why should you be praying this in front of unbelievers? And us? You get along. We need the gospel. By, remember what Jesus said. Jesus says, by this you will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So don't sue each other. Just take the loss. So sometimes he invokes rights. Other times he takes the loss. In Philemon, in the, in the short letter of Philemon, what does uh, Paul do? He tells Philemon to receive Onesimus back, and he says, just receive him back, and if he owes you anything, I will pay it. I will take the law. So sometimes in Paul's ministry, he invoked his rights here, but most often he just was willing to take the laws. But in, in both cases, no matter what he chose, again, it was for the furtherance of the gospel. You know, we Americans, we love our rights, don't we? We do. And, and, and I'm so grateful for the rights that have been afforded to us in our country. I, I'm incredibly grateful for, for God's providence and his kindness towards us and, and, and how the country was established and, and the people who have fought for our freedoms and our military uh, throughout the history of our nation. I am incredibly grateful for that. I am incredibly proud that my grandfather served in World War II and, and got a couple purple hearts. I'm incredibly grateful for that. And, and so I don't take the, the rights that we have lightly here, but I will say this. We shouldn't hold on to them so much at the expense of our gospel mission. And this was a balance I think Paul had really well here. You see, fulfilling our God-given mission should be the determining factor of either insisting on our rights or willingly giving them up. So fulfilling our God-given mission should be the determining factor of either insisting on our rights or willingly giving them up. And this is, I think, what Paul is helping us there's one other way he was very winsome and wise, and this was that he, uh, he knew his audience. Uh, there's a scene where he perceives in chapter 23, verse 6, that some are uh, Sadducees, some are Pharisees, that they were divided. And so he, um, uh, he, this was a great example of Jesus' admonition to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. And so he, he tries to, he divides them so that then he would be free to continue on in his mission. And so I guess what I'm saying is this, when the hard way is the best way, one of the things we need to do is just try to live wisely and winsomely, meaning that we're just, we're trying to assess the situation, we're speaking uh, to one group of people in a way that would be help, most helpful to them, to another group that would be most helpful to them. We're thinking that things through. This is what Paul was doing that was helpful. I've got one last point that I want to share, and then we'll wrap this up. So if we're going to choose the hard way as the best way, we've talked about a lot of things so far. We need to have confidence in Jesus' presence. There is a verse in this text that often gets overlooked. It's verse 11. They're afraid Paul's going to tear him apart, or, or that people are going to tear Paul to pieces, and so they command him to take him back to the barracks. In verse 11 of chapter 23, the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Jesus is standing. You know, one of the great theological truths of the Scriptures is the uh, posture of Jesus. Uh, 
uh, we're told that uh, in Ephesians that he came to earth, he lived as a human, we're told that he died, he was buried, he rose again, ascended to heaven, and is now seated at the right hand of the Father. The, the posture of Jesus is important because it means that when he sat down, it was done, that it was finished, and that he has access to the Father for us, and he is equal with the Father, and that he is there in the work that Jesus set out to do. When he sat down, it was done. It was completed. There's nothing else that needs to be done. And so when we read about Jesus sitting at the right hand of the Father, there is a theological truth there that is incredibly comforting and helpful to us there. But there's twice in the book of Acts now where we have seen Jesus not sitting but standing. The first was in when chapter 7 when Stephen was being martyred. He looked up and saw Jesus standing there. I think that's an incredibly encouraging moment in Scripture where Jesus stands from his throne to receive this first martyr and says, I am here with you. And here, Paul, as he is wondering if all is coming to loss and he, things are going uh, 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 bad and there's not enough ice packs around to help him with all this, who comes and stands by him but his Savior, Jesus Christ. It's an incredibly moving moment in this story. And it's not just a story. This actually happened where Jesus Christ comes and stands. This is a way of Jesus putting feet to his words when he says, I will never leave you or forsake you. He stands there with you. And so in those moments when we're choosing the hard way as the best way, and it's difficult, and we want to give up, and we are bruised, and we don't know there's some lack of clarity sometimes of what decision we should do. And people are telling us different things like this. Just understand, have confidence. That's the whole theme of the book. Have confidence that Jesus Christ is standing there for you. He's standing there. You see, we have a great accuser. We have the great accuser. The Bible says that the devil walks around like a roaring lion seeking who whom he may devour. We told that he goes before the throne and he accuses the brothers. And he says, hey, what about him? What about this guy? He just sinned. What about this lady? She just said that and she's one of yours and everything. We have a great accuser. But let me tell you, we have a better advocate, Jesus Christ. He's standing there. He's standing there and saying, don't worry, don't worry, you will get to Rome. Don't worry, your mission will be accomplished. Don't worry, I am here with you. You see, the hard way is really the best way because it's the way of Jesus Christ. It's the way of the cross. And so we can have confidence and we can confidently choose the hard way knowing that it's the best way because Jesus is standing there for us. We know that because he's coming back. He's coming back and he will receive us and then all things will be made right and there'll be no more tears and no more sorrow. There'll be no more pain. We can throw away those ice packs and we'll never have to apologize again when Jesus comes back. And we have confidence. We can have confidence that Jesus is coming back and he is standing there for us and we can have confidence in him. Amen? It's a wonderful thing. See, the truth is that we can only fulfill our God-given mission because Jesus is standing for us. The hard way is the best way. And our mission in life has to be our guiding principle and our motivation and the impetus for us to apologize and be willing to, to uh, uh, say I'm sorry. And we can do all that knowing it doesn't matter how many times I have to apologize. Jesus is standing there because he truly is our only hope in life and death. Boy, that sounds like a good song we should sing, isn't it? Let's stand together.
Musicians are going to come up as I pray, and we're going to sing Jesus Christ, our only hope in life and death. Father, I do pray that we would sing this, or this song with passion, with great thanksgiving, knowing that when we choose the hard way as the best way, that you are standing there, standing for us, and we can have confidence in this life because of you. Not because of our abilities, not because we're going to be perfect, we're going to have to apologize, but because of Jesus Christ, our only hope in life and death. In Christ's name we do pray. Amen.